Recently, Mark Zuckerberg announced he'd be changing Facebook's name to Meta, as in the metaverse, another world within our world, augmented in virtual reality coming together with Meet Space, the real world, to create another world, another life. Imagine you put on your glasses or headset and you're instantly in your home space. It has parts of your physical home recreated virtually. It has things that are only possible virtually. And it has an incredibly inspiring view of whatever you find most beautiful. Hey, are you coming? Yeah, just got to find something to wear. In one college classroom, students have spent the entire semester in another universe. I was standing there with my little avatar in the virtual campus, looking around all the completed buildings and thinking, I know exactly where I have to stand in the real world to get this view. Learning through virtual reality is on the rise. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, gaming in the classroom. A lot of universities have spent the last year hastily trying to transfer all their in-person offerings to virtual spaces. Lisa Huvel's leadership course may have been one of those ahead of the curve. Her students have been building their campus out virtually and now have the attention of the university's higher-ups. With Good Reasons, Lauren Francis has that story. At the end of October, there was a huge fire at Christopher Newport University. Not in real life but in the virtual campus that students are building for their leadership class. I'm wondering if that's off. I mean, it's a little bit off with this extra added like line because that's technically where like the indent is and it should go straight up from that. Students in an introduction to leadership course are using Minecraft to build out the campus on the server, in the metaverse, in another life, basically. Because if we, if we look at it from well, this angle... If, if this is going straight, if Gaines is going straight, this is angled. When I got the email that I needed Minecraft for my college class, I was like, I mean, okay, I'll take it. That's Allison. She was in the first group of students to take the course. And she was already pretty familiar with Minecraft. She used to play it in the back of her parents' car on the way to travel ice hockey games. My mom's like, where are we sending you? So what is Minecraft? It's what they call a sandbox game, meaning... It's virtual land where users can make their own experiences using building blocks, resources found on site, and their own creativity. Like, Minecraft, even my dad looks at it like, oh, this is like as boring and simple as you can get. You can do a lot with it. It's just what you put onto it. That's Aiden. He and other students are really into Minecraft. And others, not so much. Like for me, for me, it's just a class, but I prefer to do Minecraft than write a paper. It sounds easy, right? Just play a video game for a class. But it's pretty intense. Like looking at the buildings, they look great. They're like, oh yeah, that's one-to-one. How do you get that one-to-one? How do you measure something that in the game is one meter by one meter with you being two meters tall? How do you measure that to the triple library we're standing in right now? How do you get that when we're in feet out here, (laughs) they're in uh, meters down there, and how do you get the same feeling of that size without making it look off? Like keep the look, but also the feeling. Like right now, students are trying to replicate the round buildings on CNU's campus, but Minecraft is really boxy, so that's tough to do. Definitely the angles. It's really hard to create most of the angles in Minecraft and columns and structures like anything cylindrical is a big constraint and anything angled because there's only so many different angles you can take in minecraft you can't get that gradual angle it's more like a steep steep 45 or a 90 no in between students rely on google maps and even blueprints of the campus to make things happen at scale and it's a different type of experiential learning that has a great deal of meaning because they're seeing the results of what they do this is professor lisa huevel she created the class along with jan daughtry an it specialist they watched in awe as students worked through their projects Oh, you built this little machine that sets the forest on fire. Yes. Oh. So we don't have to sit here and let it on fire. Yeah. By the time the hour-long class was coming to an end, students had developed an innovative solution to their need to clear more forest for building space. So basically, it's using the redstone block in Minecraft to create a cycle that repeats a timer. To translate, 
They basically made an automatic flamethrower within Minecraft. Unfortunately, though, there are no limits to how far the fire can go. And some neighboring villages are kind of getting burned down. But that's a problem for the next class meeting. I would meeting. say creativity is a wondrous but chaotic thing that it takes a lot of effort to control and to really make things out of. Before I visited the Minecraft class, I had never been to Christopher Newport University's campus. But I had visited the students' Minecraft world. And once I was physically on campus, I felt like I had walked into the Minecraft world. Yeah, I've definitely walked around the Great Lawn and, and like, seen, like, I can look at McMurrin and see McMurrin in Minecraft and be like, this is exactly what I, like, this is the same. At the end of the semester, executive members of the university will come to hear students' final presentations. The university is getting ready for the future of metaverses and alternate realities. Plus, it might come in handy if, say, a global pandemic shuts down the campus for another 18 months. For With Good Reason, I'm Lauren Francis. Lisa Huvel is best known on her college campus as being the professor of the Minecraft course, a professor of leadership in American studies at Christopher Newport University, she wanted her introduction to leadership course to be hands-on, so she called on Jan Doherty to help build it out. Jan is a gamer and an IT specialist at Christopher Newport University. Lisa and Jan, people might think it's coddling to use video games as a basis for a college course, but you are confident that video games are great teaching tools. How so? I think what I'd like to say first is that it really isn't about just games in school, whether it's university or K-12. It's about innovative teaching and learning that reaches students. That's what's about for us. Uh, Lisa's right. Um, I'd also like to point out that the idea of calling it coddling kind of operates under this assumption that games and the act of play or learning through play is something that's just limited to children. And I think the more a the, the population that grew up with gaming grows up, we find that many of the most profound things or the most lasting things we've learned um, are things we learned or practiced through games. And there's there's not a whole lot of a reason to abandon that if it's such a potent mode of learning. When students find out that you are using Minecraft as a basis for a college leadership course, are you finding they're extra interested? Oh, man. <laughs> Every time it comes up. Well, sometimes even the students who are familiar with Minecraft, I've found they, they have to understand what's going to happen during this course because they don't necessarily know why we're doing it. And we need to go in and explain to them that they're actually going to be researchers working with us because we're in the fourth year of a major research project for us on what Minecraft means in terms of a, being a threshold freshman experience, for example. How does it build community? How does it appeal to students of this age range? And for me as an instructor, to be able to find out if they do this over the course of the semester, does it build their competencies? in a way that enhances their understanding of leadership. How would you describe Minecraft for people who haven't played it? Is it like building with digital Legos? Uh, that's where a lot of people like to start, and it's I think it's a great place to start. I always think of it as kind of a, an infinite sandbox world. Um, in any mode, basically, you're dropped into a world with a ton of resources, and you can go in and gather resources, and you can craft things, and then build basically whatever you want. Say if you're in a mode where um, we like to call survival mode, where you have to gather your own materials, the first goal would be to gather enough you know, wood or, or dirt to make yourself a house. What you decide to do in that infinite world is basically your own. You can go mining and gather more materials, and you can build whatever it is you want to build, um, you know, the sky is the limit. People have gone in and used Minecraft worlds to build things that, frankly, boggle my mind. I've seen people, like, build the entirety of Middle Earth in a Minecraft world. And that must have taken us so many hours and just so much dedication. But, like, that's the scale that you can take these worlds out into. 
Were both of you interested in gaming even before this course? Oh, yeah. I actually grew up as a bit of a gamer. My my mom bought me Pokemon as a kid. I'd play handhelds all the time growing up. I started playing console games around college when I could finally afford one. But they're such a formative experience as being able to kind of experience the stories and the kind of moments that video games can really create. Like on the drop of the hat, I could tell you the the first video game that made me ugly cry. Um, that was a <laughs> Mass Effect 3. But it was it was such a grounding moment that, you know, you don't forget that sort of thing. I think sometimes Jan and I were meant to find one another on the CNU campus because I came from the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation and I had uh, helped to design interactive games that we used for our national programming. And I was looking for a way to bring that into my classes at CNU. And when we started talking, the path became apparent of how that was going to happen. So what you do in that class is basically have your students create a virtual Christopher Newport University campus. How is that so great for an introductory class on leadership? Well, this is now in the fourth year. And so we have worked to get to that point, Sarah. Yeah, the first couple of years weren't uh, weren't to so far to the point where they were creating the virtual campus. What were they doing that first year? Well, we had to start off very basically with just having them do tasks in Minecraft in teams. And the the main pillars of the course, self, group, and leadership, are to understand the role of of the self in being a leader, who you are, how that how you lead from the inside out. And the other part of it is how do you also work with and communicate with other people? So to be able to find some type of a project that could be carried over the semester that they could report on at different stages, and I could bring in these educational concepts, like the stages of group development by Bruce Tuckman, for example, that helped them to understand what it is we're trying to get across in this very foundational course. It's the first in the leadership program that they take as freshmen. What are the stages that Tuckman outlines for group formation? Bruce Tuckman was a psychologist, and in the 1960s, his research indicated that there were distinct stages that a group goes through. The first one is forming, which makes a lot of sense. The second one is norming. How does a group start to put together its process? The third stage is storming, which some groups never get past. They can't figure out who's on first. They can't get the roles straight. And they end up squabbling more than actually getting to where they want to in their goals. If you get past that, you get to performing. And that's when a group reaches its peak efficiency in terms of what it wants to accomplish. And then later on, he realized there was yet another stage, and it's called adjourning. And that means it's the time when a group, unless it's going on to another project, has to face the fact that there's going to be some sense of termination and how are they going to handle that. And our students will experience that again at the end of this semester. When your students got to the stage where they're actually making some of these buildings, did they form these groups and follow through pretty much the stages that you just described? They do, and they report on that. That's part of their process to be able to observe the roles they're in and how they impact one another and how well they communicate with each other. And yes, they do. Uh, It's been very interesting to watch that because they don't all come in as Minecrafters. Some come in, as I said earlier, with no experience and without the other students to help them who are willing to walk them through this and get them to feel a sense of accomplishment, the team would never gel. And we see it happen over and over again. They come out with a sense of community. And for freshmen, this is so important that they're coming to a new space with new people. And this is a way to bond. Um, I'd actually like to add a little bit on what was on what Lisa was saying about how quickly like 
these tasks and this project kind of help the team bond and kind of develop their dynamic. Um, and that's just in contrast to, I think, uh, I just like to contrast to, to, I think, what she had prior to implementing the, the Minecraft project. Um, if you'll correct me, you had like a hypothetical pen and paper scenario where they would kind of store, you know, they would work through a hypothetical plan. Jan, that's exactly right. It, it yeah. could be something like nuclear holocaust. You have yeah. one shelter. Who are you going to save out of this group of people? And they have to talk amongst themselves and figure that out. And it was a one one stop only, more or yeah, less. Yeah, and I it's it's one stop only, uh, but also it's all purely hypothetical. Um, when you add in a level of simulation like in Minecraft where they actually have to go through and make the plan and execute on the plan, you're adding a level of kind of real-time execution that takes anything that they're learning beyond the hypothetical and they actually have to examine like the real-world team dynamics um, because while they're in a virtual environment, it's, it's still a real team. Tell them about the suicide tower. Oh, gosh. Oh, the suicide tower. Um, I think this was back from the first semester. And there was this one team that built their house as a home base. And then they go out and gather materials for another part of the project. And they get lost. Just They were all together, but they were hopelessly lost. They had no way of getting back to their home base. But uh, that required them to do kind of some quick, real-time problem-solving and they quickly realize that one of the key mechanics of the game is that if you die, you're automatically respawn back at home, when you're right next to your bed. So they promptly decided, you know, they hadn't gone far enough in the material gathering. Uh, they kind of did a cost assessment and decided that forgetting where their home was wasn't worth keeping all the materials. So they promptly built a giant tower and then started just jumping off of it until every until everybody in the team died and respawned back at their house. And it was just, it was one of the funniest examples of <laughs> team building and problem solving, you know, on the fly problem solving that I'd ever seen. Are you finding that leadership is changing in recent years? That there, that our notions of what makes for good leadership have changed? That is absolutely true, Sarah, because there are a number of new approaches that have emerged during the 20th century. And one of them is this idea of adaptive leadership about how leaders can help people to address problems and face challenges and actually adapt to change, which can be very painful and disorienting. And so this idea is that leaders don't solve the problems, but they're going to encourage others to help with the problem solving and to do this adapting to a new environment or a new situation to find those solutions together. And that's exactly what these Minecraft teams do. A lot of the best theme teams from what I've seen tend to, I guess, make the best use of all of the players. They get a kind of a strong sense of what each member of the team is really good at and then kind of structure their plan in order to let them contribute the most around their talents because then they're they're having fun because they know they're doing something that they have fun doing or they're good at. And, you know, even if there's one person kind of directing everybody, they're kind of acknowledging that other people have these skills that the team really needs to thrive. And what Jan's talking about is one reason why I've changed the actual instructional model for the teams. When we started out, the leadership rotated between the team members and the followers and the leader for that particular part of the project, they'd sort of report on each other and evaluate what was happening and how it felt to change roles. But now that we've moved into actual construction of the campus, it's more of a project management-based function to where you have a group of people who have specific competencies, and they stay in those roles over the course of the semester. And it doesn't mean that they don't flow and help one another in different ways, but it, it does look to that, to see who's strongest in what areas. Do you find more and more classrooms at the college level are using video games in the curriculum? I can imagine, for instance, that engineering, computer science, architecture would widely use them. 
We would certainly hope so. Uh, you see it in business. You see it in simulations that are done in schools of business very often. A lot of the things that we've seen happening with Minecraft, just looking what's happening across the nation, has been student-driven and student-led. There's, there's honestly so many subjects that I think would fully benefit from from taking video games more seriously as a medium. Um, you know, you mentioned business and engineering, and we're using them as in leadership studies. But I think even other disciplines, like personally, I think that taking them more seriously as an art form would be amazing. I've played games with stories and themes and the kind of storytelling that are uh, in some cases better than some books I've read. Um, or just have they have that same level of depth and intention that you could analyze a video game the same way you analyze, you know, a, a piece of art. And in the early 2000s, a professor of education, his name is John Paul G. He was focused on research in literacy and learning. And he was already seeing then the value of video games to help students with both of those areas. Oh yeah, and and since then they've they've only gotten better. There's a YouTube channel I listen to called Games as Lit that actually goes into the idea of analyzing video games from the perspective of treating them as a piece of literature, analyzing themes and characters and story arcs and even how the game mechanics kind of reiterate on those themes as well. It's so illuminating. I've noticed that students at campuses across the country have started to build entire campuses in Minecraft, and I wonder if that is something related to the pandemic. I mean, when everyone got sent home into the virtual world, this was made more possible. Yeah. I think the trend of people creating virtual campuses um, started long before the pandemic, but it started really hitting its stride and becoming way more popular once people started going into lockdown. Because um, on some level, what students really do want when they go off to college is to go off and have that campus experience, to be able to meet people on campus and to connect and to do things and to build these relationships and make these connections. And when you're in a situation where what you originally had is impossible because everybody has to stay inside and be safe, you're still hungry for a way to do that. And providing a virtual campus you know, the space may be digital, it may be virtual, but when you meet someone in that space, the connections you make are still real. I read that some of the Ivy Leagues are now so competitive when it comes to creating virtual campuses with Minecraft, that kind of thing, that they've started using digital tools that make it much faster and more elaborate. So instead of the sort of painstaking Lego by Lego approach that you might get with just Minecraft, they're using add-ons that, you know, are sort of cheaty ways of doing it, right? Well, that makes sense for the for, for the reasons that they might be using it. If they if they if their goal is to just have the product that they can use for stuff like virtual tours, yeah, but our point isn't just the product, it's the process that the students go through in building it, which I think gives them a level of ownership that wouldn't be provided otherwise. Um, right, right, Dr. Hubel? Absolutely, Jan, because it's a little daunting at first when you're faced with this campus, this real world campus, and you understand that you're going to take GPS coordinates and Google, and you are going to figure out the building dimensions yourself. You're going to figure out the footprint of these buildings on the campus. And each team is going to separate out to play the roles that are going to make that happen. That is not exactly the same as, as a entertainment-type gameplay to where you really want to get through it and get to the next level. We're looking at creating something that we hope is going to have lasting value. And the, and the level of investment students feel about the virtual campus because they built it themselves and built it so painstakingly so that it's as accurate as it is. Um, I think the first time that I logged in after the first semester's sets of buildings were done, I remember standing in between um, the little gap between our clock tower and Forbes Hall. Like I was standing there in my little with my little avatar in the virtual campus, looking around mm -hmm. all the completed buildings and thinking, 
I know exactly where I have to stand in the real world to get this view. And just the fact that the students put in that level of love to make it that accurate just blew my mind. Why do you think it is that future students, that young high school students considering a university, would be so drawn to a Minecraft virtual representation of the school instead of just going online and seeing a video virtual presentation of the school? I think it's the interactivity, right? The difference between watching a video and going there in a virtual space is that there's a level of separation in video. You know, it doesn't feel like you're really there. You don't get to make choices about where to go and what to look at. You know, it's all curated for you and you know, you you have to look at whatever other people choose for you to look at. With with that interactivity, you can kind of explore around. You can look at the parts that matter to you. You know, if you're a science student, you can spend more time wandering around Forbes Hall. Or if you uh, are, are a, you know, a bookworm, you could go head off to the library instead of, uh, instead of having to just wait for it to happen in the video. Do you think part of it is also they just love online gaming and this is a cool way to see a campus? Yeah, that, that is probably a part of it. You know, <laughs> game, video games are mainstream now. It's one of the most popular forms of entertainment in the world. So the fact that somebody's taking it seriously probably kind of feels like in a way they're being taken seriously. Like, oh, hey, they, yeah. they're doing things in a way I understand. And they're not saying that it's some childish thing that I'm going to have to abandon once I go to college and become an adult. One of the professors in our leadership program emailed me this summer because she was taking a family relative around the campus. This was a young man who's in high school. And she said what really got his attention was when she told him that Minecraft was being used to teach in the department. You never told me this story. <laughs> I know. It's, it's pretty amazing. There may be parents and grandparents out there who have an opportunity to bond and have a whole new source of conversation and connection with players in their own families just by virtue of taking an interest in what these games mean to them. Well, Jan and Lisa, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Well, thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Sarah. Lisa Heuvel is a professor of leadership and a professor of American studies at Christopher Newport University. Jan Doherty is an IT specialist at Christopher Newport University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back from Virginia Humanities. This is With Good Reason. You know that joint that started aching after your 30th birthday and never let up? You try to stay off it or move it as little as possible, but that actually makes it worse. James Thomas and his team are working on virtual reality games that seduce users into exercising their pain points. Here they are with a pain patient playing virtual reality tennis. Load screen is not up in there, is it? No. Okay, you can. All right, here you go. All right, I need to go full Jimmy Connors on me. That's James Thomas. He leads a team at Virginia Commonwealth University's Motor Control Lab, and he's a professor in the Department of Physical Therapy. James, what led you to think of using virtual reality for people with back pain? Well, I've been a clinician for a lot of years, and before going into research, ended up looking at a certain aspect of pain and fear of pain and how it influenced how people moved. And we were trying to come up with a clever idea of how we could engage. We really started in a very, you know, virtual reality in the most basic manner. We were playing, our original game was played on a 3D TV with shutter goggles. <laughs> Um, and then the introduction of the Oculus Rift 2, the headset, the fully immersive, we just said we got to jump in right away. What do you mean about people with back pain having fear? What were you trying to get them past? Yeah, so there's a lot of work that people have looked at that people who have sort of high fear of movement, um, 
generally think that my back is hurt, and if I move, I'm going to really be hurt, and it's going to be permanent. Yeah. And so what people tend to do is there's the whole fear avoidance model of back pain that was developed. We actually were one of the first labs to say, okay, how do these fears actually play out with people with back pain? So that was the whole rationale was how do we get people to overcome this fear and to engage in movement? Do you want people with back pain really to move? I mean, shouldn't they not move? <laughs> no, they no, no, no. The old adage to rest is to rust. <laughs> um, but it really is problematic that people don't engage in movements. Let's say that you're worried about hurting your back. In the early stages, like when it's first injured and really inflamed, yeah, a little bit of rest. But as you start to recover, let's say you start to avoid certain areas, like you don't like to bend forward. And so you avoid bending forward and you change your movement patterns to avoid that. Now let's say that all of a sudden you're walking along and you've got a bag of groceries and you step down off a curb and the bag shifts a little bit. And now you're forced to bend forward. Right. Well, now you have to move in an area which your body hasn't, isn't used to. You're stretching tissues that are shortened. Your muscular reactions are going to be delayed. And then you're going to exacerbate your condition, which is then reinforces this construct. Oh, I shouldn't move because it'll make me worse. And it, and it, and it spirals downhill. So you can take a person with a painful back condition who you need to get up and moving in a certain way to be healthier. And this is helped by putting a virtual reality headset on and lashing out with the body? Well, yeah, and it's a little bit more than that. We created the game of dodgeball, virtual version of it, right? So it's a game that everybody knows. And what happens is, is that I can adjust the trajectory where that ball is going to hit you. It's going to hit you in the head, in the chest, <laughs> in the knees, or the ankles. Right. And by doing that, I can get you to move and move progressively further. Yeah. And then I can adjust how fast the balls are launched at you. So the faster the balls are launched, the quicker you have to get there, which means not only do you have to move a certain amount, but then you also have to move that amount quickly. So the actual um, loading or forces that are that you have to generate go up. So we, we started real easy, high arcing uh, balls that are coming at you. They're easy to intercept. And then we progress the game so that it's more and more difficult as you're progressing through the, the intervention. You have another game I love that involves swatting at attacking sharks. <laughs> Tell me about that one. So our dodgeball game is called Dodgeality. And then we have Fishality, which is a fishing game. <laughs> and essentially, you're on an idyllic lake. And this is one of our easier games because you see the fish swim up, they jump in a nice high arcing fashion, and then they come in and you reach out your net to try to grab them. Again, we can change where the fish, virtual fish are going to launch and land so we can get you to move in any direction we want you. Well, part of any game is you have to have elements that surprise and sometimes terrify. <laughs> and so they're... There is this thing where you're, well, you'll hear a bit of the soundtrack from Jaws, and then all of a sudden a shark will leap out of this pond. It makes no sense. You're you're on a pond in the, <laughs> you know, thing, but all of a sudden this giant, you know, uh, great white is coming at right for your head, and to successfully do it, you're supposed to duck out of the way of the shark and let it pass over. But a lot of people entertain and like to smack it with the net, which then causes the shark to fly away. So, so much of this is distracting them in a pleasurable way that deeply engages them. And then they're actually going through the body motions you need them to make to heal. Yes, that's precise. And we, you know, in part of the distraction is we also engage the competitive nature, right? So you're, you're, every, every game has a score and you're keeping score and there are, you know, small monetary amounts that, you know, for each successful block ball, you know, five, five extra cents. If you get hit, five cents gets taken away. So there's some sense of, oh, I don't want to just stand here and get hit. I want to engage. Oh, I could totally see this being used not only in gyms, but also in physical therapy setups. 
Yes. The idea is that there will be versions that would be in the clinic for evaluation, for treatment, and then ultimately in the homes. We'd like, I'd like to be able to have this so that folks can put the headset on, engage in the process, and then if, you know, we think next generation, we want to say, all right, the healthcare professional can make adjustments to the settings to make sure they're getting what they need. We're also starting to work with a uh, colleague down at New York University developing a virtual, an artificial intelligence smart learning system that will adapt the game on the fly to the individual. Why is this better than a game they can just play that already exists off the shelf on their Wii, like Dance Dance Revolution or some sort of tennis or golf game? Sure, those are interesting games, but they don't scale to the individual. So our games are designed, so I'm 6'2". If someone's 5'2", or 7'2", our games will adjust specifically to your height to ensure that we are getting a specific type of movement. All of our games are then tailored on, okay, we want you to move in such and such a way. We're going to make adjustments in where the ball is launched, how fast it's launched. In these over-the-shelf games, there's some benefit to them, the Wii and such, but they're basically having you move around without any specific purpose. Any downside to one of these games? There's potential downside in one of the challenges in VR is this idea of motion sickness. If you move your head and rotate your head to the right two degrees at two degrees per second, the scene in front of you needs to rotate to the left at two degrees per second. If that's off at all, hmm. you'll start to feel a little queasy. Oh. So the the classic example to use this, this knowledge is Disney and the rides at Disney World. So where there's visual uh, components and there's motion, the frame or the alignment of the visual stimuli to the motion is off by maybe a frame or two they know that that will make most people feel a little queasy. <laughs> and that way you feel like you've had your money's worth for a particular ride. If you get off a ride, you don't feel a little like, ooh, you don't think you've got you know your money's worth. And so that's a classic um, oh. setup um, for amusement parks. And they, you know, it's well known that, you know, that this is what happens. And then when you come off the ride, you get you come through a quick blast of cold air and then it realigns the stimular system with your ocular system. So your eyes and your ears are now realigned and telling you the same thing. That's so interesting. I had no idea Disney did that on purpose. You know, these days, so much of the actual gaming experience online is with players around the world. Could you imagine that happening with your patients, that they would actually game with each other? Ultimately, that's one of the ways, that, you know, when we talk about developing some of our games is right now you're playing dodgeball against some avatars. If we can get people and develop our next generation of gaming where the actual work is, you could be sitting there saying, I could be playing with different folks across Richmond with back pain. I could be working with people across the country or across the world. And particularly, you know, beyond back pain, which is somewhat ubiquitous, right? You know, it's hard not to throw a rock and hit someone who hasn't had back pain. Right. But something like Parkinson's disease, which is a much smaller number and the community is smaller, when we get things completely cloud-based, that individuals in Richmond could be playing people in Florence. And you get a number of things beyond just the movement is you do get social engagement, which, again, given the pandemic and the different elements, people feel closed in. And that only gets exacerbated with aging and various disease states. James Thomas is a professor in Virginia Commonwealth University's Department of Physical Therapy. To many parents, video gaming is the opposite of learning, but that's not the case in Jacob Enfield's classes. He says gaming makes the struggle of learning more rewarding, and it can keep students from giving up on difficult subjects. Jacob Enfield is a professor of game design at George Mason University. Jacob, so many parents fear that gaming is not actual learning. What do you say to that fear that games in the classrooms are really cheating? If you are learning, does it matter? <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, does it really matter how that learning occurs? Like if, if, 
if there's a shortcut and students actually learn, then it's just a teaching strategy. It's just a learning strategy. You know, there are a lot of games that are for entertainment, but even with those games that are designed for entertainment, students learn way more than um, than other activities they might be doing. The amount of information that people, those players have to kind of consume and, and, and analyze to be effective in some of these games is ridiculous. Um, I know I saw a video recently about the you know, World of Warcraft, that was like the second largest wiki in existence because the, the world was so expansive. And so, you know, there's there's plenty to learn in games, um, and that's just entertainment games. So if they're designed for learning, then you've got all kinds of new possibilities. You started using a game in the classroom for the first time when you were teaching a small class of Spanish-speaking students, and you spoke no Spanish. Yeah, that was an experience. Um, I, and it was also interesting because I was teaching algebra in a computer science classroom. Um, so really, the computers and the technology became a, a, a way to help me communicate with the students. It was a really fun class. It was, it was probably, it is my favorite class of all time to date. Um, they were <sighs> wonderful kids. Right. And the communication wasn't a as big of a factor as you might have thought. But one of the games I did develop was to kind of focus on the mathematics um, and where they were at in their mathematics, their their current ability levels, but at the same time kind of address that um, language issue. So in the game, it was it was partly language learning, uh, you know, learning the numbers and the and the terms for addition and subtraction and and the you know the, the vocabulary of mathematics in English. <laughs> What game did you develop for them? Well, when I developed it for them, it was called Mucho Math. You know, I ended up changing the name of it to Mental Math because besides the language, you know, they're learning mathematics and and specifically they're, they're learning how to do math in their head. Could you tell that they were really getting it? Well, yeah, that's one of the nice things about a well-designed game is if the gameplay is well aligned with learning objectives – then they can't proceed in the game. They can't progress. They can't level up without getting it. And I think the classic way to design a game is, you know, you you do have a pretest. You have the students play the game. You have a post test, and hopefully they've learned what they need to learn. But then once you know that the learning is happening, you don't need a test, right? The game itself is the test. They progress through the game, and that shows that they are learning. They are applying the concepts in the way that they need to apply them. Describe mucho math for me. What did they have to do that kept them engaged? The game included activities that involved them trying to get the cheese out of the room. Um, they had to kind of navigate through using angles and get back before a cat could get them. Uh, one of them was, it was called fish food. And the fish would swim around and try to eat the other fish, which had numbers on them of what they were aiming for. Maybe even numbers, maybe multiples of three, maybe prime numbers, whatever the level was. So it was a more of an identification. Can students identify the, the correct thing? If they ate the wrong fish, well, they wouldn't eat the fish. The fish would eat them. And that would be the end of the game or the end of the level. <laughs> <laughs> You said you loved that class and those students so much, even though you all had a language barrier. Why was it? The students were genuinely passionate about learning and happy to be in school. It was refreshing. Um, and they were excited to come to my class. They had a little one-minute game they did every day right when they walked in, which is like um, just trying to improve their best performance. And they liked, I don't know exactly what they liked exactly, um, but they, they felt so comfortable with me and, and the class that on my birthday, they brought me out of the room. They set up a whole bunch of stuff in the room, set up a cake, brought me back in blindfolded, and then shoved my face into the cake. And, you know, <laughs> I, I was like, I don't think most students would trust that I would not get upset or that something negative would – like, they just trusted me. They, they felt comfortable, and it was like a family almost. Um, they, you know, they, they reached out to me years after. It was, it, I just really liked the students. <laughs> it's such a joy to hear you describe that. Weren't there already other math games, so many of them out there, that you could have given them rather than designing your own? There's a lot of poorly designed serious games that don't focus – on the learning objectives. I've seen games where 
just quiz questions pop up. And if you answer them right, you score a goal. If you answer them wrong, the other team scores a goal. And students can see right through that immediately. So with poor games, what are some of the criticisms of using games in the classroom when they don't work? Yeah, so... Drill and practice is one of the criticisms. It's saying that, hey, these games are great at letting people just try something over and over and over and over and over and over, which, by the way, is great because they get instant feedback. And I think that games are great for drill and practice. But there's people who criticize them for saying, well, you're not really getting to the deeper levels of learning, to analysis and synthesis. And to that, I would just say, well, that's because you're looking at games that are focused on drill and practice. And and I think that there's a place for those. But there are a lot of other games that do require deeper analysis and synthesis. As an example, I just recently saw a game, a mechanical engineer developed a game where the students had to do the math that would bring a spaceship down to land on a platform, but it had to go fast enough to get past the closing gate and slow enough that it wouldn't crash and get demolished at the bottom. And there was a very slim threshold of, like they had to be basically perfect. And every time they played the game, the mass of the ship changed and different things changed. So they couldn't just try and try and try and get lucky finally. You know, as I hear you say that, I relate to my own experience I never felt like I was quite caught up in math classes. I just didn't have yesterday's basic lesson. It would have been so much better if somehow I could have privately caught up on the principles through games. Yeah, so math is a great example of where we are falling short in our education system because of this system that we have of grading. And so imagine, you know, starting math in second grade or I don't know, wherever it really gets going. I was a middle school and high school teacher. But imagine passing the class with 70%. So you have this 30% gap of things you didn't really understand. Not to mention what you did understand, but kind of faded away over, over time. And then the next year, you have another 70, 80%, you know, or maybe you can get 90%, right? But you still have a 10% gap. So, so over the years, this gap gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, yeah, everybody's going to feel like math is hard because they have so many gaps. But in game-based learning and really just mastery learning in general, there are no gaps. Students don't get to move forward until they understand the concept, right? They, learn, they move at their own pace. And so for me, the most exciting thing about game-based learning is how well it aligns with mastery learning. I, you know, I recently taught at a, a school with a computer science program where they got rid of grades altogether. They had mastery learning, and you kept track of their achievements and what they've learned and what they haven't learned yet. And then what goes in their transcript is kind of a, a visualization of that. You, you know, the high school was working with colleges to accept that in their, as part of their transcript. So that's always an issue is, well, the colleges need, you need to know what the GPA is of students. Um, so, you know, you have to work around this kind of grade-based system that we have, which I know I've heard in, in your other previous episodes, people talking about the, the education system as a, a sorting mechanism to figure out who are the best and, and the next best. But that's not what learning needs to be these days, right? Do you think that gaming will be the norm in classrooms in the near future? I think it's the norm for some classrooms already. And when I say norm, I mean it It, it happens regularly. Um, sometimes it's gamified things like Kahoot is a really popular thing in schools. And that, again, it kind of creates a little competition Jeopardy type um, feel for kind of going over information. But I think as far as getting games for learning like sitting behind a desk or sitting on your mobile phone and playing these games, I don't really see that as being in the classroom. I see it more of a flipped classroom that, that teachers might assign it. Hopefully, I would see them assigning it and then using the classroom time to debrief. Um, one of the most important things with learning through games is debriefing. Um, there's been research that shows that without debriefing, you're going to have all kinds of issues with learning. Um, specifically, you're going to have misconceptions. You're going to learn things that were unintended. Um, as an example, you're playing a math game and they are supposed to learn XYZ, but they end up learning shortcuts or other ways to beat the game or other ways to progress through the game. And they didn't actually learn what you expected them to. Well, you don't know that unless you have some type of debriefing session. How hard is it for teachers to find the best games and not waste their time on the bad ones? 
are we giving teachers at every level the top games out there so they don't waste time and students' time? Yeah, I think that there is no central repository for finding good quality games that I know of. You know, you hear about a game, you try it with your students, it's word of mouth. And, you know, to some extent, that might be the best approach. That way, the only games that really get to be successful are those that teachers really appreciate and enjoy. Yeah, I don't know. I've never never thought about it too much other than I've always struggled to find the game that I would want my students to play. So I've oftentimes made the game <laughs> I want my students to play. Well, Jacob Enfield, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Jacob Enfield is a professor of gaming theory at George Mason University. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, a National Cancer Institute designated cancer center researching and developing the treatments of tomorrow. UVAHealth.com. Virginia Humanities has a new paid fellowship opportunity for humanities scholars affiliated with Virginia's historically black colleges and universities. Selected candidates will be funded through a grant from Dominion Energy Charitable Foundation. Applications are due by January 7th. For more, go to virginiahumanities.org. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.